All right, I'm being interviewed. <clears throat> I'm telling Brian everything I know. <laughs> that's 30 seconds. That's it. That's all I know. That's all you got. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is episode number 10 with session guitarist and Atlanta music scene legend, Rick Hinkle. Welcome to Fader Jocks. My name is Brian Stevens, freelance musician and recording studio professional. Each episode, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you grow and develop as an audio engineer, music producer, or recording musician. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's push up those faders. This episode is brought to you by Session Ace and their incredible line of in-ear monitors and other musician-specific products. I've been using the Six Driver Universal Fit ESA in-ear monitors on every single recording session and live gig that I've played on for the last three years. And let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing under $2,000 that sounds as good as these ESAs. Believe me, I've owned everything under $2,000 just about. And the shocking thing about these is these six driver in-ear monitors, you can get them today your own set for less than $400. Unbelievable. So go to SessionAce.com today to check out the ESA in-ear monitors as well as their entire catalog of musical products. That's SessionAce.com, remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. Hey there, welcome to episode number 10 of the Fader Jocks Podcast. I'm Brian Stevens, your host, and uh, you know what? You're going to notice that my uh, my energy is a little low today. I'm not my usual overly exuberant, chipper self. The last few days have been a little bit of uh, interesting. On Sunday, my wife and I, we had uh, a car accident. And uh, it's it's Tuesday as I'm recording this. We were rear-ended, and the young man hit, that hit us, uh, thankfully nobody was hurt seriously. Uh, the, we are thankful for that. Uh, but uh, the young man that hit us totaled his car out, and uh, from talking with the insurance agent this morning, uh, it looks like my truck's going to get totaled out too. And so uh, it, it was ugly. I had posted a picture of the young man's car on my personal Facebook just for my friends to see so they would sort of know we were headed down to see a buddy of mine play for a set or two before we shot over to see the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra with Stuart Copeland, the drummer from The Police. So it's going to be a, a night filled of great music and uh, cut short a little bit by this car wreck. And so put the, the photo up on my Facebook for my friends to see only. And I was really surprised at the overwhelming number of comments and well wishes and, and hearts and engagement. It was just, it was through the roof. And I really appreciate that so much. I, I was surprised. People that, uh, some people I hadn't heard from in quite a while that uh, left messages or off of the Facebooks. That, uh, I got phone calls and text messages and emails, uh, voicemails from people just checking on us to see how we're doing. It rung our bell pretty bad, but uh, I think we're going to be okay, and uh, hopefully we'll get uh, get this whole thing sorted with getting a new truck soon. And But the whole thing really just uh, coincides 
with this episode really, really well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lace these two together if you'll give me a couple of minutes. We're going to go back in a time machine this week for an interview that I actually recorded for a podcast that I did eons ago. <laughs> Originally, this interview was recorded in 2006. Some of you guys and gals listening to this will remember a little podcast I did back starting around uh, the beginning of 2006 called The Music Pro Show. It was one of the first music industry podcasts, one of the first probably four, three or four. There was Big Al Wagner and Mike Shetler doing a home studio podcast. Dave Jackson had his Musician's Cooler podcast. There were not, the point is, there were not a whole lot of podcasts back then. Not like now, for sure. And uh, so this interview you're going to hear today, I originally recorded in 2006, which is 15 years ago. And the person that I'm talking to is Rick Hinkle. Rick has been one of the most amazing people in my life the last 15 years. So this conversation was interesting for me to go back and listen to because a lot of the questions that I asked him in this interview, I would have asked him if we were just to redo it today. A lot of those things I would have tried to cover as as well at the time. This was information I didn't know. I'd been playing with Rick in a corporate and wedding band for a couple of years when this interview was done. And uh, we talk a little bit about that, uh, both in the interview and in the Patreon extras. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, this week I'm going to make the extras for this episode, and there's at least 20 minutes, maybe more. I'm going to make the extras free on my Patreon because I really want everybody to, to listen to everything that we did. This is, to me, the most important interview I think I've ever done, ever. Uh, Rick has been one of my dearest friends. I absolutely love him, like he's a, a real flesh and blood family member. And he's been so integral to so much of my career and my life, honestly. His wife, Susan, and I, we share the exact same wedding anniversary. So almost every year, COVID being the exception, Rick and his wife, Susan, and my wife, Rosemary, and I will always do an anniversary dinner because not only were we all married on the same day, February 15th, we were married in the exact same year. So the the same day that I was getting married to my lovely bride, these two wonderful people were getting married on the exact same day. And so we've always made a point to, to get together, even if we hadn't been playing gigs together or doing recording sessions together. And so what you're going to hear in this interview is really two years into a really close friendship that now has gone another 15 years. And, and this interview really made me think about relationships and and the thing that I wanted to spend a second talking to you about today are the the relationships that you're building as you're doing what you do. If I could go back and talk to my 34-year-old self. I was 34 years old when I recorded this interview with Rick. He was 50 about 56 years old at the time. I'm only about almost six years away from that now. It's, it blows my mind to think about. What would I have 
told myself at 34, knowing what I know now, 15 years later, and the overarching thing that just kept coming to my mind as I was listening to this interview, as I was thinking about all the wonderful comments, all the people checking in on me the last few days, I just, if I could go back, I would tell my 34-year-old self to know that relationships are everything. In work and in life, relationships are everything. And to spend your time, if, if, if you need to know what to spend your time on, really, relationships are everything with all of the things that we're tasked with doing every single day. There's one thing for you to keep your mind on. It's how are you cultivating, how are you growing, how are you building new relationships every single day? Because as I go through and think about my career over the last 15 years, my career over the last 26 years in Atlanta, my career even before, going back before that, most of my work comes from my relationships, it doesn't come from content marketing. It doesn't come from uh, advertising. It doesn't come from auditions necessarily. The, the vast majority of the work that I've gotten the last 25, 26 years, definitely the last 15, comes from these relationships that I've built. And, and, and people recommend me for things. They recommend me to others who need the stuff that I'm able to do, the things that I'm skilled with being able to do for them. But beyond work, my best life experiences and some of the best opportunities just to do fun stuff come from the relationships that I've made over the last three decades. Some of the deepest relationships I have are with people that it may have started as a work relationship. You know, we get on the same gig together. We get on the same recording session together. Somehow we just hit it off and we keep in touch in between the gigs, in between the recording sessions, in between all the things that we do. We keep up with each other. Phone calls, text messages, emails, getting together for lunch, getting together to hang out, pre-COVID, getting together to hang out for no other reason than just to hang out. I've got a couple of friends that all we do is uh, when we see each other is we sit on a back porch somewhere and we smoke cigars and we'll have a cold one together. And, and some of my best life experiences come from those relationships that I've built, and they're numerous, hundreds of people. That might sound like a humble brag or something, but but it's it's quite honestly the truth. I would say it's a pretty good bet that if you're listening to this podcast and I know you, we have a really, really good relationship of some sort, and I cherish that more than you will ever know. There, there's so many relationships that have been built because of the podcast that I've done the last 15 years and the content that I put online. There's so many people that I've met through the content that I that I've put up and and have grown those casual relationships into really deep lasting friendships with people that uh, that still follow my content but we have a much higher level of engagement now because we talk on a regular basis or we text or we email or we see each other and life being what it is you're gonna have ups and downs you, you can't get out of that you can't just have a life that is trauma free or uh, that's free of any kind of neg- disrect that I had on Sunday 
just out of the blue. I'm driving, doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, watching the road, watching for other drivers, driving speed limit, leaving plenty of space between me. Like I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do and I get hit. Nothing I'm going to do about that. It is what it is. It's not good or bad. It just is. And and right now, it feels like a real low point, you know, especially having to deal with all the stuff I'm having to deal with, uh, back pain and uh, a busted up car and having to get a rental and deal with insurance companies and maybe dealing with lawyers. Like, it sucks. That It's a down part of the, of the life that I'm living. But the one thing that I know is that all these relationships that I've been able to to make and to tend to, almost like a gardener, I'm able to plant these seeds of friendships with people, uh, whether it's at work or through work or through just the everyday course of life. That uh, as I go about doing the things that I do, and and they really in downtimes like this, they give me a soft place to land. It, it it is. It's like cultivating a whole garden of all these relationships that invariably when life takes a turn and it heads in the downward direction, you end up with this really cushy, soft place to land because you've always got these wonderful people that are there for you to make sure that you're okay. Maybe they do stuff for you. Maybe they're just checking on you and checking on how you are. I had a good friend before this accident happened Sunday morning that I saw, and he stopped me. He said, man, how are you doing? I'm of course, you, I'm Southern, and I'm going to give you that. Yeah, I'm doing great, man. Everything's fine. And he, he just put his hand right on my forearm. He goes, no, no, no. Stop for a second. How are you really doing? And just look me dead in the eye when he said it. And of course, <laughs> that's when you get the real truth of, well, yeah, here's what's going on. Here's the things that are great. Here are the things that are not so great. And for you know that two minutes that we talked to each other, he was just a comfort. And basically, you know, his comfort to me was, listen, man, whatever it is that you're going through right now, know that you're going through it to learn some kind of lesson. You're here to learn something from whatever is going. And and I almost feel like he was being a little prophetic, (laughs) knowing what would happen a few hours later. You're going through whatever you're going through now because there's some lesson that's inside of that that you need to learn. So just pay attention to it. Pay attention for it. And when that lesson comes, really take that in and move forward with that new knowledge. And, and, and I appreciated that. That That's someone that I've known almost as long as I've been in Atlanta. And, and that was a good word that I needed to hear, especially considering what was about to happen. And if, if you look around and you you see that you don't have very many of these true long-lasting relationships with other people, especially people in your industry, the thing that I've come to think about the last few days is I have a ton of them. But I also know people that have been in this industry, as long as I have, if not longer, that don't have a ton of really deep, honest, nurturing relationships for whatever reason. And you have to ask yourself, if you don't have those, why? I mean, I'm grateful. Hundreds, if not thousands of people that I can just pick up my phone and I can call and, hey, man, you want to grab lunch? Yeah, let's grab lunch. Hey, man, how are you doing? I just want to check on you. People that will take my calls, people that will respond to my texts, people that will check on me when they know there's a problem, people that are right there. Hundreds, if not thousands of people that, that I'm incredibly grateful for, but I also know people 
who are in my industry that don't have that really, really deep, like my bench for friends is deep and long. Like if, if it were a baseball team, I could, I could fuel several baseball teams. I could fuel an entire league with these people, but not everybody has that. And so you have to ask yourself why. And the kind of questions that immediately come, it's the kind of questions that I would ask if, if I looked around and I didn't have two or three of these relationships, if I didn't have one or two people or three real honest-to-goodness relationships, friendships, people that I could count on, people that I could be there for, and people that would be there for me. My, the first question I'd have to ask myself is, are my motives pure? And am I seeking the best for everyone that I come in contact with? Or am I only really just looking out for myself? With all the people that I've come in contact with just the last 26 years of being in Atlanta, are my motives pure? Am I am I seeking for not just a win-win. That's transactional. Uh, I want to make a decision or I want to do a thing that's going to give you a win. It's going to give me a win. We're both going to have a win. We're gonna... that, that almost seems kind of transactional. Am I wishing the best for the other person in this interaction that I'm having? Whether it's a conversation or a gig or a recording session or uh, you know, maybe somebody comes and, and they're doing a lesson with me or a, a consult. Or we're just having a conversation, hanging out and having a beer. Do I want someone to come away from that conversation and, and really be better for having it? Which also begs the question, in all my interactions, am I being truthful and honest and empathetic? You know, tr- Truthful and honest are really two different things the way I think of them. Truthful is always telling the truth as you move through the world. So that means accepting responsibility when you've screwed up. It means accepting responsibility for a failure when you know that you're the reason that something has failed. And not only accepting that responsibility, but being truthful in how you move forward with it, whether it's mending the, a relationship or mending the bridge that you burned because you weren't truthful in your interaction. Honesty is a completely different thing to me. Honesty is always being transparent about your feelings and and what's happening as you're moving through the world as a human being moment by moment. Honesty is telling someone that you love them when you need to tell them that you love them, when you appreciate them, whether they've done a great job on something or they've done something really wonderful for you, or they've just you've seen them be a really good person in the world. When when you see that and you make that observation, you make it known to that person. I see you and I appreciate you, and and what you're doing is a good thing. That's honesty. Honesty also shows up in conflict. So often we try and avoid conflict. We try and uh, do everything we can do to circumnavigate any any iota of conflict. But real honesty is being able to move through conflict in a way that the other person knows they're getting the genuine version of you and that they can give the genuine version of themselves so that you can Put that conflict on the table 
in between you and work your way through that conflict. It, it's when people aren't being honest with each other that you can't have true conflict resolution. It's when people have hidden agendas or they have hidden fears or they have some reason why they can't bring their true honest self to the situation that you can't have a resolution in conflict. Some of the people that I've got some of the deepest, longest-lasting relationships with are people that I've had some of the, the hardest, most difficult conflicts with. But because we were both honest in that moment and we sat that issue right on the table in, in between us and dealt with that conflict in a way that was honest, and we, we both brought our honest selves to that conflict, we were able to get through it and we were able to build a tighter, stronger relationship because we moved through it. And to do that, you've also got to be empathetic. To be able to be truthful and to be able to be honest, you also have to be empathetic with people because we're all having this human experience that's wildly different for for each person but that the tent poles are the same. We all have fears. We all have anger. We all have trust issues. We all want to love. We all want to be liked to some degree. Uh, we all have these things that are swirling around inside of us and how we move through the world. And part of building long-lasting relationships is to have empathy for another person. Even if you've never been in their particular situation, you've never had the life experiences that that other person has had, you have an empathy that says, I see you and the experience that you're going through and moving through this world. And I, I can tell you that I care about this interaction that we're having with each other. And I want the best for us as a result of this conversation, of this project, of this dinner, of this hang time, of this argument, to want the best for someone despite the fact you're having an argument with them. That's powerful. That's incredibly powerful. It speaks to my a question that came up as I'm thinking about this. How do I make people feel when they're around me? I mean, it's, it's easy to make people feel great if everybody's laughing and the jokes are flying around the room and you know, maybe we have a few cold ones and, and uh, it's a happy time. Maybe it's somebody's birthday or something. Yeah, it's, it's easy. But how do you make people feel in the good and the bad times? That's how lasting relationships are built, when you can make people feel, even through conflict, that they're seen and that they're heard and that they're valued just because they are who they are. They're another human being moving down this continuum. I heard a long time ago, people don't always remember what you say, but they do remember how you made them feel. And I, I try and walk away from every interaction, good and bad, at least leaving people with the impression that I've seen you and I've heard you and I understand. I understand where you're coming from. If we're having a conflict, I may not agree with you, but I understand your point of view. And maybe we just have to agree to disagree in this point. Uh, for, for all those great interactions, how can I contribute to something that's, that's a great interaction and make it even better than you thought you'd walk away with? You knew you were going to have a great conversation, but not only did you have a great conversation, you walked away with some nugget of truth that you can 
that you can use, that you can utilize, or you got some kind of affirmation that you needed to keep you going, to keep you fueled. If I'm having a problem with building long-lasting relationships, I'm talking relationships that go for decades, i got to ask myself, are all of my interactions purely transactional? I do this for you and then you do that for me? Or am I seeking to be of service to other people, both in work and in life, so that other people are better because of their interactions with me? In a work situation, are people better because you were working on their project? Are people better because you played on their gig? Are they better the next day? Are they a little closer to what their goals are for themselves? Are they a little closer to what the goal is for the project? Are people better for having that conversation with you, for spending time with you? It's hard for me to believe that you wouldn't be able to build these amazing relationships over decades if every time you had an interaction with someone, even if it were not necessarily a good interaction, if someone felt as if you were trying to be helpful, you were trying to be of service, you were trying to do good for everyone involved, even if there was conflict involved, the person would have to walk away from that knowing, you know what? I think he really was trying to make sure that we both came out of this favorably, that we got what we needed out of this interaction. When I was younger, especially in my 20s, I think I made a real conscious effort to try and make that the case with every one of my interactions, that people walked away with a great feeling and that they felt like um, that we both got something out of that interaction. And now at 49, it's just how I conduct the day. I don't really even think about it that much. I only really think about it when I'm sitting down to record a podcast like this, or when I look back, like I've done the last few days, look back on all of the great relationships that I've built over the last three decades. Wonderful people that I still am in regular contact with, and even the ones that I don't see every day or every week, When we finally do talk again or we see each other, we basically just pick up where we left off. Whatever our last conversation was, whatever the uh, the last thing of note that it was that we had in our last interaction, a lot of times now because of Facebook and, and some of the social platforms, a lot of those friends keep up with what's going on with me. I keep up with what's going on with them. And we sort of pick that ball up. And what about this? What about that? Hey, I saw the other day. I saw you got a new car the other day, man. How are you liking the car? It's that genuine interest in the other person and just really being happy to have some time, spend some time with them, get to talk, get to uh, to interact again. Now that COVID's lifted, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll have a lot more of that. Speaking of a lot more of that, that really is what brings me back to this week's guest. We're going to go back in time. We're going to get in the time machine and go back to 2006. And originally, this was an interview that was, I think, episode 18 of the Music Pro Show back in 2006, 2000, early 2007 is maybe when this came out. But back then, maybe only a few thousand people heard this, certainly not as many people now. Since people are into podcasts now, tons more will get to hear this interview. This this really is um, one of the most important conversations I think I've ever had with one of my, my dearest friends. And if you don't know Rick Hinkle, if you live in Atlanta and you're part of the music 
seen here, you know exactly who Rick Hinkle is. You know everything about him or most everything about him. But for the benefit of those who don't, let's talk about Rick Hinkle for a second. Rick Hinkle is one of the most recorded guitar players in Atlanta music history. Uh, he was working in studios in the early 70s. Uh, he has worked with everyone from uh, Paul Davis to the Tams to Benny King, Howard Tate, the producer Jerry Ragavoy. There's so many people. It, it would take forever to list all the people that uh, Rick Hinkle has worked with in the studio. And then playing, a lot of his playing the last few decades has been here in the metro Atlanta area. But before that he traveled like most musicians and, and being on the road especially with bands like the tam and we share a commonality uh he was in a movie playing a guitar player called consenting adults this is back in the 80s i would guess and kevin klein was one of the main stars in that movie well flash forward to a few years after this interview was recorded and i got to play a drummer in a movie called las vegas and one of the main stars in that movie a guy who I actually stood in line with for the bathroom at one point with Kevin Klein. So we have a Rick and I have a commonality there. We've both been in a movie with Kevin Klein. Now, when we were doing this interview, it was recorded back in 2006, just as Rick and his wife Susan had moved into their new house. He was just finishing the studio that he's been in. It's weird to think he's been in that studio now for 15 years doing all kinds of projects. The most recent thing that he and I worked on recording was uh, the Mark Cavalli single, Every Day. So if you go to Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you stream your music, just put in Mark Cavalli, K-O-V-A-L-Y, and look for the song, Every Day. All the guitar that you hear on that single is Rick Henkel. He was perfect for that. And so he was just finishing the studio back in 2006 when we recorded this. Now, I was doing the math on on it and um, Rick was 56 years old he's 71 now he was 56 years old when we recorded this interview and uh, I'll in a couple of months I'll be 50 I'll be 50 in January so I'm only about six yeah six years away from uh, the age that Rick was when we recorded this I'm a lot closer to it now than oh, I don't want to think about it don't want to think about it <laughs> that is another subject for another day but uh, yeah, I was 34 years old when I recorded that, and that's part of what got me thinking about all this stuff. So some of the things that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, what it was like growing up before and after the Beatles. We're going to talk about uh, his parents were professional musicians and the influence that they had. Uh, he worked in the studio with Eddie Kramer. We're going to talk about that. Played on one of my favorite childhood songs, Pac-Man Fever. We're going to talk about that. And one thing that's different, I left this interview exactly as it was on the Music Pro Show. One thing that's different about this interview than any of the other ones I've done before here on Fader Jocks is that at different points and times in the interview, I spliced in tracks that Rick played guitar on. So as we go through the interview, as these natural segues happen, you're going to hear little snippets of tunes from Rick's recording history. And like I said, he's he's one of the most, if not the most recorded guitar player uh, in Atlanta. And uh, you know what? I've, I've said enough. I've, I've built this thing up enough. I want you to enjoy this conversation with my friend Rick. I'm going to actually see him later this week, and we're going to do a part two. We're going to do a catch-up. Uh, it may come out as the next episode. It may be a couple episodes from now, but 
Uh, we're going to do a, a part two with Rick Hinkle and catch up. What has happened the last 15 years? But for now, let's jump in the DeLorean. Let's get in the time machine. We're going to go back to 2006. And this is my interview with the man that I, I lovingly call my uncle, even though we're not related at all. This is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Say hello to Mr. Rick Hinkle. So today... I have my friend Rick Hinkle with me from Audio Cam Music. That's right, and that's actually where we are right now. This is a this is a first for me. This is a first taking Music Pro Show on the road, basically. Well, this is a first for me today because I just moved the studio, as you know. Yep. And as I told you, this is the first time I've set up a mic. I mean, I've actually done, <laughs> done a little bit of sound design stuff, but it's the first time I've set up a mic in the new studio. And I'm looking forward to this year. I swear I think it's going to be a good year. You know, starting in, when did I start? August, we moved. Yeah. And so I have been moving the studio. Right. And it took me a long time just to get everything moved. And now I'm building and I'm really close to getting finished. So, you know, uh, we had to move our both of ourselves, I mean, our house, right? my wife's studio, my studio. Yeah, for people that don't know, uh, Rick's wife is a very busy and talented voiceover person here in Atlanta. Named Susan Bennett. Yep, Susan Bennett. we got to give her the plug. Susan, yeah. SusanCBennett.com is, right. is at the website. And she has her own studio that's upstairs. Right. AudioCamMusic.com is the website for the studio. So they can get more information about the studio, the gear that you use. You've got a great Trident 65 console that I would love to have in my own studio. Um, you haven't been using Pro Tools that long. No. A uh, little over two years. Yeah. In the scheme of things, it's not that long. Before that, I did everything on tape. Yeah. And I have a very nice uh, old, well, <laughs> there aren't any new ones. Uh, Studer A80 wide body 24 track machine. Yeah, and, and I mean it's it still looks, working very well. It looks like a museum piece. I mean, yeah. it's really <laughs> well kept up. And uh, yeah, 24 track Studer, and it sounds awesome. It, uh, I mean, it looks almost like the day you bought it. It, it, it's really in, in great shape. Let's go like way back to the beginning for a second. When did you start playing guitar? Well, let's see. I was born in 1950. I got a guitar in 1963 when I was 13 years old. Okay. $5. I don't think I ever got around to paying for it. <laughs> what kind of guitar was it? Oh, that guy. I don't think it had a name on it. Just a little acoustic guitar. Yeah. For some people, it was seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. For some people, it was any number of other things. What is it that let you know that guitar is what I want to do more than anything else? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I actually played trumpet starting about five years old. Took piano lessons starting around 10 years old. When I was in the seventh grade, I guess I was about 12 years old, mm -hmm. uh, this buddy of mine had a guitar. And he hit that big E chord, and that big E chord just sounded so great. Yeah. I wanted to do that. And just the way that E chord looked, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. There's something about guitar that I thought was really great. Funny, the thing I had before guitar was a ukulele, and it was a lot of fun to play. And I, I seemed to be able to pick that up a lot. I was really bad on trumpet. Yeah. And, you know, just a little better on piano. So, you know, the ukulele made sense to me. It just fell under my fingers. And right. So when I first got a guitar, like for mm, the first... Oh, six months. I just couldn't be stopped. I kept getting better and better until I finally reached a plateau and leveled off, you know. Right. They started high school in the eighth grade in those days. I just got in high school, got in a rock and roll band. Yeah, you know, just great. But <clears throat> music was really different then. It's hard to think. I mean, you know, that was pre-Beatles even. 
Wow. You know, uh, Elvis Presley hit the scene in, what, 56. I was six years old. That had an impact. You know, all of that stuff had an sure. impact. And then by the time I had a guitar and started playing, the, the people I was listening to, I'd stumbled into the Freddie King instrumental album, which is still one of my favorite things in the world. I still listen to it. Uh, <clears throat> Lonnie Mack's album uh, that had the hit Memphis. It was a hit on the radio at the time. Okay. And um, The Ventures, Walk and oh, Run Out. Oh, yeah, definitely. So those three albums were the big guitar influences at that time. There was no Jimi Hendrix. There was no Beatles. You know, all that stuff hadn't happened yet. So what was that like to, to come through the before period and then the during? Was, was it as revolutionary while it was happening as it is now? Yes, it was. You know, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, looking back on it, I'm such a Beatle fanatic at this point, looking back on it, I can say, you know, like around, oh, maybe 1969 when the Beatles were breaking up, it, was, it, it felt like the sky was the limit and just anything could happen. And now looking back on it, the sky really wasn't the limit. It was like, you know, what was happening right then yeah. was kind of the limit in that kind of music. And uh, it never, nobody really ever outdid all of that. Right. For my way of thinking. Sure. So, you know, yeah, it was exciting to be in the middle of it, but it, looking back on it, you didn't even realize how exciting it was. I wouldn't trade it for anything, I must admit. I'm really glad I grew up when I grew up, really glad I was 14 when I sat on my grandmother's couch and watched the Beatles come on Ed Sullivan. I went, uh-oh, <laughs> that's different, you know, because I, I thought, well, you know, I'd seen their picture and I'd heard the song and I thought they were a four-piece singing group. Right. Like the Four Tops, Temptations or something. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they come out in Sullivan, and it's a band. And, you know, that was, that was before there were bands. There were artists out in front, and that was pretty much it. Singing groups and single yeah, artists, yeah. that kind of thing. There were not bands. So uh, that's really the big thing that changes. All of a sudden, now there, then there were bands. And all of those tons of bands came after that, and there Lots of really great ones and stuff, you know. What what age were you when you started to play out and around town and play play gigs as a teenager? Really early. Really early. My mom and dad are musicians. Uh, my dad played sax. My mom uh, sang and played cocktail drums. And uh, they worked together sometimes. But mostly they worked separately so they could both be leaders, both make money. Right. And, uh, I re you know, I can't remember how old I was. I think I was somewhere between 14, 15. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was... 13, but I think, you know, let's say 15, when uh, <clears throat> my dad came to me one afternoon and said, well, uh, bass player is flaked out tonight and you're it. Wow. And I said, well, I don't play bass. He said, yeah, can you fake it? Uh, I don't have a bass. Yeah, could you borrow one? <laughs> <laughs> so I really did. I borrowed a bass. I can't remember whose it was, but I borrowed a little, uh, I think it was my friend Charles Elwood. Charles Elwood lent me a Harmony hollow body bass, those little things that kind of, those little quirky things like you'll see Cheryl Crow play these yeah, days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, so so back in those days, he was playing swing music, of course, and uh, at the beginning of the night, he said, all right, I'm either going to hold up four fingers or two fingers. Four fingers means play four notes a measure. Two means play two notes a measure. Right. So in other words, either play four beat or two beat. Sure. He said, I don't care what note you play, just play a note. And, you know, and I did. And after a while, I started playing, I think, some of the right ones, you know, maybe that night, <laughs> hoping. <laughs> so your, your first gigs were with your folks, that's, that's kind of cool, kind of a family thing, I guess. T tell me about the transition from playing with them and sort of having that safe haven and into playing with 
other people and maybe starting to become a professional musician? Well, actually, I even before playing with them, I had my little rock and roll band in high school. We were called the Corvells. Right. You know, we were playing stuff like Oop Poopy Doo, What Did I Say, the kind of stuff that sure. was out, you know. Actually, we had three guitars, drums, and sax, and a singer. You remember I told you I was, uh, when I first started playing, I'd found my instrument, so I was getting better quickly. And mm -hmm. as I said, Memphis was on the radio, the, the instrumental version by Lonnie Mack. Yep. I went to band rehearsal one day, and I'd worked it out. And I said, hey, watch this, and I played it all the way through. And the guy that was the lead guitar player said, okay, I'm buying a bass. You're the lead guitar player. Wow. So, you know, I was on top of the world for a minute. And then a few months later, uh, this other guy joined the band uh, that could outplay me. The guy's name was Phil Jackson. I don't know what happened to him. I hadn't seen him since. But I got demoted back to rhythm guitar, which was very, very good for me. Yeah. Get put in my place. Put you in check. So, yeah, I was already doing that, really. Actually, the singer of that band was Little Phil. Oh, the wow. The legendary Little the Phil. The legendary <laughs> Little Phil. I still have yet to give you that CD. I have it sitting on my desk, by the way. So let's, let's get into the period of the 70s. Well, the early 70s, I uh, went to work for Tom Wright who had a place called Melody Recording Studio on uh, off of Cheshire Bridge. And uh, we weren't actually on salary, but we were the staff band to do whatever came in there. And pretty soon that turned into doing sound-alikes. Uh, I don't know if you remember the guy, Mike Thevis. I don't think so. He was, uh, he was the porno king. Okay. I think he was kind of mob-connected. Anyway, right, he ended right. up going to jail. Uh, he started Tom in the sound-alike business, okay. meaning taking all the top hits, re-recording them, selling them to unsuspecting truck drivers on the KTEL label or whatever. And uh, so, you know, it was great experience. We had to try and sound like all those records. Right. Now, we didn't really get the luxury of all the time it would have taken to do a fabulous job. We did a kind of a crappy job because we were making uh, $15 a song a piece, which meant... For a 10-song album, we made 150 bucks. So we were trying to do two albums a week so we could make $300 a week. So you would have to go in and actually learn the licks or as close as you could? And we would do an illusion of the licks, okay. mostly. You know, And the funny thing is, uh, looking back on it, I'm sure we didn't do uh, a very good job on some of the important things. But, I mean, at the time, you didn't know it was an important song. Like, okay, like take a song like uh, Maggie May. Right. It was a great classic rock song. It's a, a wonderful recording, you know. I mean, sloppy as it is, it's just great. But uh, we recorded that song the day I heard it. The record came out. They gave us a copy, listened to it. I jotted down a chart. We went out and played it. Actually, I even think I sang that one. <laughs> and, and was, uh, Paul Davis was working a few doors down at, at Bang, and whenever we did a country song, we'd get Paul to sing it. And... Uh, after a while, they started getting different singers. You know, they started trying to get a little bit better, bring in real singers and stuff. What, did, what do you feel like you took away from that experience of getting something and immediately having to replicate it as quickly as you could? Well, you know, there are a lot of things you learn from. I mean, first of all, you learn how pop music gets put together. Right. And you start seeing the tricks that uh, repeat themselves, you know, and you start learning how to duplicate those tricks. Yeah. And uh, it was a great experience, uh, which is good because, we, you know, we weren't getting rich. Yeah. But, you know, what else we'd do is the four guys that were doing it ended up becoming a band. We became Air Raid and uh, <clears throat> did a record with Eddie Kramer in 1980. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. 
kind of brings me to my next question. Um, you had a band called Air Raid that got to work with Eddie Kramer. Yeah. And even if you've even if the people that have that are listening to this show have never heard of Air Raid, I guarantee you almost every person that listens to this show has heard of Eddie Kramer. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. What was that experience like? Oh, uh well, it's kind of funny because Eddie and I really didn't get along all that great. But it was it was still it was still a good learning experience. Um, he had just done projects with uh, Ace Freely right before he did ours, and and so uh, I think that he was still looking for more stuff like that. The stuff we were doing was uh, really out of date at that point. You know, we were we were like uh, Procol Harum. It was it's really kind of a very very heavy Procol Harum and Jefferson Airplane influence in the writing and. It was really, really heavy, majestic rock, and those days were kind of over. Sure, you know, making way for the for the hair bands that were about to come out. Uh, were there any th- any things that you learned, maybe from an engineering standpoint or production standpoint, that you carried away with you from doing those sessions with Eddie? Only a little, because I got to tell you, in those days, I wasn't that interested in the other side of the glass that much. That really happened later. It wasn't until. Uh, sometime in the late 80s that I started messing around with recording as a hobby, doing it myself, you know, just for fun, and uh, kind of got out of hand. That's how, this how came I ended to be. up here, you know. But um, prior to that, really all I cared about doing was playing. So it's, it's, I wish I had cared more about it. I would have learned more. I mean, it's, I, used, yeah, I used to watch Eddie do stuff, and he was, he was very impressive to watch because, I mean, you know, the guy's really talented. Sure. And he could, he could whip up a mix just boom out of nowhere, you know, and he had lots of tricks. When <clears throat> when we recorded with Eddie, uh, we were up in a mansion in Connecticut called, um, what was the Colgate Mansion in Sharon, Connecticut. And uh, it was built in, I think, 1901. It was the uh, first house with indirect lighting. It was a big mansion, you know. And it, uh, it was actually where Eddie had recorded... Uh, some of the Kiss records, I think, or for sure Ace Frehley's uh, solo record that he had just done. And uh, so, you know, everybody was in a separate room, in a big, big room, you know. The drums were recorded in a stairwell that was a big wooden stairwell. And um, I've never seen more Neumann mics in my life. He would have pairs of, you know, big, large diaphragm Neumann mics about every five or six feet. He probably had 12 pairs. Wow. And that was how he got the drum sound. I don't think he used reverb. I think he just used those. The ambient mics. Mm-hmm. And he made that decision in advance. I mean, he didn't have the luxury of, you know, unlimited tracks like people with Pro Tools have today. He was recording on 24-track, 2-inch tape. So those drums got mixed into probably, well, I don't really know, but I'm, I'm assuming no more than eight tracks. Probably fewer. So he sort of committed himself to what the drums were going to sound like at the onset. Right. Wow. That's and he'll, if you hear him, uh, hear some of his interviews and so forth, you'll hear him talk about that. Engineers are afraid to do that today, but that's what they had to do, and so that's what he's still comfortable with. What sort of guitar setups were you guys doing? How was, uh, how was he going about capturing your sound? Once again, with uh, close and far away mics. In a big, beautiful room. I was playing through a 50-watt Marshall with an 810 cabinet, playing a Les Paul Deluxe. Pretty much that was it. No effects. 
straight into the amp. Was there anything different about what you thought your sound was and what he did to your sound or what he captured your sound as being? Yeah, that's one of the reasons we didn't get along all that great. I, I was looking for the sound that, oh, well, nobody's going to know this record. There's a record called Touch that was done in 1967. It's the name of the band. That's the name of the record. Guitar player's name was uh, Joey Newman. Keyboard player was Don Gallucci who came from the Kingsman, believe it or not. He had played on Louie Louie and uh, had a band called Don and the Good Times that played on Shindig or Hullabaloo, something. I think it was Hullabaloo. And then that turned into Touch. And musicians knew about it in those days. Right. Anyway, that was, that was my inspiration, and that's what I was looking for. I didn't necessarily get that sound from him. I remember one time, as a matter of fact, we recorded this one thing, and I finally I said, there, there's the guitar sound I'm looking for. He said, no, 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 we've got to, we've got to do it over. It's too distant. And he was saying he had too much of the room mics and not right. enough of the direct mic. That's what I liked. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that, that always seems to be the case, um, especially when you, know, you have a producer that has a real strong vision. The, di the, the big argument with Eddie was the bass sound. Eddie wanted a clean bass sound. We wanted a distorted bass sound, just as distorted as the guitars. That's what we did when we played live. That's what we did when we practiced. That's the sound we were married to. It's the thing that we thought made us a little bit different from everybody else. And uh, the inspiration for that, by the way, was mostly uh, Jack Cassidy. And if you watch that, if you watch that, uh, Eddie Kramer, you know, the making of Electric Ladyland. Yeah. We're sitting there with Jack Cassidy. You can kind of tell he didn't like the sound he was getting on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they acted like they liked each other and everything like that. But uh, You could see You it. could tell Eddie wasn't all that into it. He insisted on taking uh, a direct track in addition to the amp track. Because mm -hmm. we had the amp track going through Marshalls and just... Just as loud as it could go? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Very distorted. Which is, of course, that's, you know, now didn't know it at the time, but now I realize actually Cassidy was taking two signals as well. He would have one amp that was relatively clean, and then he would have that little amp that was, I think it was an airline or something like it, kind of like a silver tone that he would bring in with a volume pedal oh, wow. to add the distortion. And it would be loud enough to give him feedback, depending, you know, if he stood close to the amp. Sure. I don't know if you've ever seen him do that, but he, that would be part of his psychedelic trick. So picture this. Picture uh, some young, blonde-haired kid in the middle of Mississippi turning on the radio, who loves video games, by the way. I mean, like, I would spend, I'd spend my whole allowance on a Friday afternoon at the arcade, okay? So I turn on the radio, and here's a song about one of my favorite video games. Pac-Man Fever, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you see where I'm going with yeah. this. What was that experience like? Tell me about recording Pac-Man Fever because I'm I can I can imagine at this point I'll probably slip in a little bit of of the track cuz maybe not everybody knows that song. 
If it weren't for LimeWire, I, I wouldn't have a copy of it. <laughs> no, no, actually, I do have it. I have it on vinyl. I would, I would imagine at the time that was probably just some sort of, you know, like here's a, here's a little bit of a novelty kind of thing that I'm doing today. Because you, you were, were you doing sessions pretty heavy at that point? Well, I mean, you know, I was um, 31 years old. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do as many sessions as I could. I was, yeah, uh, that thing was done at Studio One, where the Atlanta Rhythm Section did all their stuff, where uh, Rodney Mills did all his work, and uh, Greg Connell was the engineer on that, as a matter of fact. I don't know if you know Greg. Mm-mm. I had played for uh, some live, a lot of live gigs with Jerry Buckner. Okay. With a guy named Edgel Groves, and uh, Jerry and I were in the band, and um, met his friend Gary Garcia when he moved here, and so it was Buckner and Garcia that did that. Right. It was actually, you asked me what it was like to do that. It was a weird, uh, doing the guitar part was a weird session on on that particular song because it was, uh, it took forever because I would, I was sitting out in the studio with wearing my guitar with headphones on, waiting for them to finish their telephone conversation with whatever business guy it was that they were having trouble with. Oh, really? So it was like one of those things that took all day for no apparent reason. And it was actually a very frustrating recording uh, the solo on that. The, the rhythm parts, no problem. But when I got to the solo, they wanted all the notes to be high notes, which is really hard just to stay there. Right. You want to move around and get a little range going. They didn't want that. They wanted everything in the upper registers. And if you go back and listen to it, you'll notice that it is. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think they thought that's what radio wanted. They were trying to be very commercial, I guess. How do you how do you get through that? How do you how do you process that? And and what sort of mindset do you have to be in to to make that work? I think a good a good thing a good rule about that. I wish I'd learned years before I actually learned it is that uh, the things that you consider the simplest things in the world are not necessarily boring just because you think they are. Right. You know, they're the simplest things in the world because you've worked on it long enough, you've gotten good at it. And those those just straight-ahead cliches that, you know, you could do in your sleep, if that's what they want, that's fine. That's probably what needs to be there. You know, uh, as I've gotten older, I've learned to actually love cliches. There's a reason they're cliches, you know. They're good licks, you know, they kind of grown i've changed my mind about all that so you know uh i guess when you're younger you're trying to uh play better than you've ever played on that track you know which really you just need to do your regular thing the thing that comes easy for you pat boone debbie boone exactly but and and then you know and also and make the things make the have it be the right thing for the song right you know have the overall thing sound you know play for the song rather than your own part you know
you've got a large collection of guitars on amps. By some standards, <laughs> by, <laughs> probably not by others. Yes, I think I finally counted when I moved. It's around 32, 33 guitars. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, uh, not guitars necessarily, but stringed instruments. Right, right. So, you know, maybe half of them are guitars and the other half are just assorted. Like it could be basses, banjos, mandolin, lap steel, whatever else I'm leaving out. What about amplifiers? What have you got as far as amplifiers? <clears throat> got a, a fair collection of amplifiers, particularly the what I call the main three food groups, Fender, Marshall and Vox. Okay. Got a few quirky things, you know, silver tones, Alamos. Given all the stuff that you have, all the guitars and the amps, or the string instruments and the amps that you have, what do you end up normally taking to a session somewhere else? Oh, it it really depends on what kind of music it is. You know, like say if it's a blues session, and uh, if I'm the rhythm or the lead guitar, uh, chances are I'm going to take a super reverb. Just hard to beat for that kind of thing. If it's a straight-ahead rock and roll session, I'm really partial to uh, my AC30. If if it's something where they're wanting actually more distortion than that, go ahead and take one of those Marshalls. What other kind of thing? You know, if it's something where I want to be completely clean and kind of jazzy, once again, take the Super Reverb. Just don't turn it up quite as much as right. on the blues session. Really, I find that I enjoy the AC. I think the AC30 is my favorite amp these days. But I like them all. If you were talking to, let's say, a young guitar player, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, that um, would like to get into doing sessions, what are some of the Swiss Army knife-type tools that you need? As far as guitars and amps, what are the must-haves? Well, you know, uh, you probably need a nice, solid-body Gibson like a Les Paul and a nice, uh, solid-body Fender like a Stratocaster. You can actually kind of get a Telecaster and almost do both with that. You know, like Led Zeppelin 1's a Telecaster and Led Zeppelin 2's a Les Paul. It's really hard to tell them apart. They really get to sounding a lot alike, especially once you distort them a little bit right? like they did. I like to have an assortment of stuff. If you're only going to have one guitar, probably a Telecaster is the most versatile guitar. You don't get a whammy bar that way. But uh, for being able to cover just about all kinds of music, everything from, you know, heavy metal to jazz, you can really do it with a Telecaster. Well, that's funny because most of the time, most people would associate country music with a Telecaster. and not, Yeah, you can do that too. Yeah, not, <laughs> not necessarily rock music with, with Telecaster. Interesting, cool. If you were talking to that same person, that same young kid, for, for a session guitar player, what are some pieces of advice that you could give to a young player that's looking to try and build some sort of studio career? Well, you want to know, you want to have as much history as you can possibly have and uh, as much musical knowledge as you can possibly have. It's really helpful to know how to read, even if you're not really, really good at it, just to at least know how. You don't want to develop too much of a taste for one thing or another that you can't appreciate everything. I mean, it's okay to get really, really heavily into one particular type of music or something, but, you know, just remember that anything can be played well.
you're sort of an encyclopedia of music, at least from <laughs> hanging out with you, because you know a lot more than just you know name a Beatles song. It's more than just the chords. I mean, you know the arrangement, a lot of the licks, and it, it's that way for Otis Reddington's or. How much time do you still spend on learning songs? I don't spend any time practicing anymore. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily bragging about that. I just don't have an interest in practicing. I don't run scales or all that kind of stuff. So pretty much all of the time I spend, other than just actively playing, working a job or trying to record some part or whatever, is trying to work out you know, a song. It can either be just generally working out the song, just trying to learn it and learn how it goes, learn the chords, or trying to learn specifically exactly how it was played on a given performance. So I, I spend a lot of time you know, working out the parts as accurately as I can. Actually, I, I find that pleasurable, you know, trying to figure out exactly what somebody played. What music inspires you? Now, new stuff, old stuff? Well, stylistically, the same stuff that I've always liked, really. British Invasion style rock and roll, which doesn't necessarily have to be British, but just the stuff is... That sound. All that came after that. And uh, American, uh, what they used to call R&B, with soul music, I guess, you know. Those two things are probably my two favorite. You know, what blues-based stuff, stuff that came from a combination of blues and church. You know, the stuff that was inspired and started by Ray Charles and Freddie King. and But still, I'm split down the middle yeah. between uh, American and British rock and roll, blues, soul music. Lord, have mercy. Call on me. And I'll walk with you. think people call you for sessions and gigs i didn't know they did (laughs) (laughs) you know actually uh i think when i get a call a lot of times it has to do with they know i have a sense of history about a certain thing you know i can remember one time um oh in the early 80s getting a call from ed c and phil benton and paul davis when they were uh, all still in town and uh they were doing a record with this group uh, you remember Whiteface? Well, they were doing a, a record on this guy named James Anderson with Whiteface as the band. Okay. And they decided to do this song called Big Bird, which was a soul it was a soul song from 1968 by Eddie Floyd. It, uh, it was actually about Otis Redding's plane crashing. That was what the song was about. Mm-hmm. But it, it was this song that had kind of a it was a soul song that had a real psychedelic edge to it. And they knew that I knew the song very well and loved it and you know, this was back before you could find stuff. You know, they, they couldn't find a copy of the record or anything like that. They actually called me because they knew I'd know enough about the song to come in and get it to happen. And and then once I was there, they said, well, why don't you go ahead and add yourself to this song and that song? And I ended up getting on the pretty much the whole album. So, you know, uh, knowing that I had a sense of history got me that particular session. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
from the vantage point that you have right now, when you take a look at your career, the, you know, the entirety of it, how much thought have you put into all that's going on and where you are now and where you're going? Or is it something that just kind of it just kind of unfolds for you? No, I guess I kind of think about it all the time. I've, I've probably gotten to the point now where um, artistically I would like to be able to, you know, do whatever I would like to do with it without worrying about whether or not that makes money. Right. So, on the other hand, the things I'd like to do for money uh, don't necessarily even have to involve music. In fact, I kind of like it when it doesn't. You know, um, my wife Susan does voice stuff, of course, and I like to get involved with uh, some of the stuff she does where I can get hired as the um, engineer to do to edit what she does. And, uh, you know, we got a couple of things we do that way. It involves no music at all. It's just, you know, getting in the computer and chopping stuff up, maybe taking out a breath here and there, labeling stuff, uh, changing it to whatever format it needs to be for loading into a phone system or whatever it is, or putting together a 15-second or 30-second commercial with uh, uh, her and a few other voice talents, putting uh, canned music behind it that I had nothing to do with, you know, yeah. just just... Really and truly, just doing some uh, some studio work uh, that is not for you know a songwriter or a band or whatever. I'd, I'd really rather do that and make a little bit better money and not even have to do all of that uh, songwriter demo stuff and right. recording bands or what. I mean, you know, if it's a really great band and that, that's another thing, and you're really getting into it. But sure. for the for the most part, if it's something you're not all that into, I'd just assume it didn't even involve music. And then leave me time to experiment with whatever I want to do for fun. I, I don't know. I, I guess every now and then I might get into trying to put down a track of something I've written just to see how it'll come out or something like that. But it's 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 uh, fun not to have to make money with that. Guitar. let you get out of here without at least telling me one joke preferably oh. a musician joke but oh <laughs> you got to throw one out there all right well let's see <clears throat> two guys on the street one guy says uh hey who is that lady i saw you with last night in the sidewalk cafe the other guy says that wasn't a sidewalk cafe that was my furniture rick hinkle everybody <laughs> <laughs> seen in a barbershop bob peters here nope just shaving haircut <laughs> my buddy rick hinkle and i appreciate you guys both for listening to me ramble for 30 minutes about today's topic and also for uh taking the time to get in the time machine with me and go back to 2006 for this amazing interview it's, it's one of the most 
uh, important interviews for me personally that I've ever done. I love Rick to death. And uh, I should see him sometime later this week, beginning of next week. And we're going to record a part two. So I can catch you up on Rick Hinkle, let you know what he's been doing the last 15 years. It, this interview almost sounds like it happened two weeks ago. Uh, that's the wonderful thing about Pro Tools and recording things well that uh, this stuff, it never gets old, unlike tape. And like uh, my body (laughs) kind of sore this week. Anyway, so one thing I'm going to do, I've got about 20 extra minutes of content that did not fit into this interview. I'm going to make this available for free on my Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Brian Stevens, you can listen to 20 extra minutes of my interview with Rick Hinkle. And, and some of the topics that we, we go through, he talks about his favorite guitar players. He talks about how he feels about John Mayer. Uh, this was 15 years ago. I'm sure it's pretty much the same now. <laughs> we talk about Jerry Ragavoy. We didn't say much about Jerry in this interview. He talks about Jerry a lot more. And we, we talk about music that we love from that time period. He talks about the, the best setup for recording a band. He talks about having to play and replicate parts. Uh, he did a lot of sound-alikes. He mentioned just briefly in our interview, he did a lot of sound-alikes in the 70s. How did he learn to replicate those albums, and how does he do that live, which he still does to this day? We also get into a topic that's a little touchy. I didn't really want to put it on this podcast, but the use of uh, use of substances and libations and how that either enhances or detracts from the music that was made back in the 70s and part of the 80s and the early part of his career. He gets really honest about his feelings about that stuff, and uh, it's in those extras. So if you go to patreon.com slash Stevens, you can listen to those extra 20 minutes for free. And if you like what you hear there, the whole reason that I started this Patreon a few weeks ago was to begin putting extra content that didn't belong in the podcast on there. There's also a whole new drum sample package, Brian's Drums Volume 1, that's up there. You can download that immediately. 130 fabulous drum samples that you can use in your productions today. Uh, Also, the native capture sessions so that you can make your own sample libraries from my drums. And so there's all kinds of stuff there. And Every single week, I'm going to be putting out new content just for my Patreon patrons. And you can look at the different levels that are there. There's all kinds of special things that we're doing there that's extra content, bonus content, downloadables, mix sessions, all kinds of stuff. Just you can read all of it. We're also doing a weekly Discord Q&As. We're doing some live streams. A lot of cool stuff over on the Patreon. Make sure you also hit our uh, other sponsor, SessionAce.com, some of the, the best in-ear monitors I've ever used. And I'm going to do something really cool and kind of cool for me, kind of special. We're going to end this episode. Instead of going into our regular theme song that gets us into and out of the podcast, uh, I'm going to treat you guys to what was originally the theme song for the Music Pro Show, my very first podcast that I did starting in 2006 that ran for a few years. And uh, for those of you who knew me from Music Pro Show, this will be a a nice little treat. If you never knew, uh, well, you'll get to hear how we used to get out of every single episode, including that wonderful voiceover from the voice of Siri. The world knows her now as that. 
and uh, also the voice on so many other amazing TV and radio commercials. In fact, I just heard her on, uh, I believe, a Sprint commercial the other day, Susan Bennett. She's going to do the voiceover to get us out of here uh, for you guys who never got a chance to listen to Music Pro Show back in the day. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Please share this episode with your friends. I hope to have you here next week for another episode of Fader Jocks. And until then, I'll see you when I see you. The Music Pro Show is a production of SAM Audio Publishing. For show notes, podcast archives, and much more, visit us on the web at musicproshow.com. All right, so if you've made it this far into the program, you're a diehard, and you, you've probably been listening forever. You probably also know how much I love Easter eggs in any kind of content. So I wanted to pull something else out that I found in that old episode of Music Pro Show, talking about relationships and building relationships and how influential they are. Uh, One of the people that I mentioned in our episode, Dave Jackson, who used to be the host of Musicians Cooler, works for Libsyn now, which is a podcast host company. They do all kinds of other things for podcasters. But his journey took him uh, to the pinnacle of, of companies when it comes to podcasting and supplying services for podcasters. So this was a cool holiday wish that Dave sent uh, back in 2006 for the episode. I just wanted to include it as a nice little Easter egg for anybody that listened past the outro of the show. So, um, Dave, if you happen to be listening, dude, I really appreciate all of your support way back in the day. I appreciate all the good things you've done for podcasters the last more than 15 years at this point. And uh, I hope all is well in your world, my friend. Maybe we'll cross paths soon. Here's Dave's holiday greetings, and it's just almost in time for holidays now, so we'll consider it holiday greetings for 2021 as well. Brian, hey, man. Jamming Dave Jackson from The Musician's Cool. Just wanted to take... uh a quick second to uh, wish you and your family and all the Music Pro Show listeners a happy uh, Kwanzaa. Yeah, there we go. I think I got them all. Just wanted to stop by and say, hey, thanks for a great year of podcasts. I know you always kind of bash yourself for uh, not putting them out. You know, well, that's because you're a working musician, my man. And, uh, you know, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. And the quality, my friend, is there. Thanks for all the insights you're sharing about uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Wish you guys the best of luck in this year in 2007, and uh, just take care, man. Oh, got a plug. MusiciansCooler.com. See you, man. Merry Christmas.